Despite not winning the 1999 Rugby World Cup, the Springboks did have a memorable tournament. In this video, you are going to get a retrospective review. I'll give you my thoughts, and you'll also hear from five Springboks in their own words describing what happened. Let's get started. A year out from the 1999 Rugby World Cup, South Africa were the outright favourites. The Springboks were in the midst of a 17-match unbeaten run, and were the defending champions to boot. But in 1999, things went south. A bizarre away test against Wales in the middle of our season saw the Welsh defeat the box for the first time. That would be the first of four defeats in a row, one of which was an embarrassing 28-0 hiding at the hands of New Zealand in Dunedin. It is true there were a lot of injuries in the squad in 99. It is also known that behind the scenes there was friction within the squad owing to the inclusion of exciting youngster Bobby Skinstad. To be fair to Bobby, it was not actually his fault. Coach Nick Mallett was forced to find a way to bring Bobby into the starting 15 owing to his outstanding performances on the field. The story goes that assistant coach Alan Solomons, who was also the head coach of the Stormers, had a heavy influence on Mallett, and that is what helped force Bobby into the starting 15. That happened in late 1998, and star flank Andre Fenter was the man who had to make way. Fenter dropped to the bench to allow Bobby to come into the starting 15 at that stage. One thing about professional athletes, guys, they do not like disruptions to their routines and systems. They really are creatures of habit. You see it in tennis, for example. A player is seemingly unable to serve unless he or she has bounced the ball a certain number of times before the serve. It has to be five, for example. It cannot be four or six. Now, if the team was losing or if there had been injuries, then the players would understand that somebody would have to make way and a replacement would come in. But the team was actually winning at that moment. In fact, when Skinstad made his first start, the box had already won 15 tests in a row. Needless to say, some players didn't like it, and it did affect morale. So that may have affected our performances going into 99. There was also another incident involving Rian Oberholzer. He was the CEO of Safu at the time, and the story goes that on the eve of that bizarre test against Wales in the middle of 1999, he called a meeting with the players and had a full go at them and explained that going forward there would be a radical implementation of quotas. Now, I've said on the topic of white and black players before that we have a population of around 60 million. New Zealand has 5 million. If we had to actually get things right and do development properly and follow proper processes, we would dominate New Zealand. Think of it like this. They have 5 million people, we have 60 million people. We do not use anywhere near 100% of our population. Imagine if we did. Think of how scary that would be. The Kiwis would never beat us ever again. Now, of course, that's not actually what Oberholzer was talking about, and that rant of his proved to unsettle the squad. And then came the ultimate bombshell. Nick Mallett dropped Gary Teichman. You don't have to imagine what that felt like. Here's Gary in his own words. My relationship with Nick had really um, it had, it had, it had gone, and gone backwards, I think. And, um, you know, we had always had a very open relationship very uh, straight talking relationship and um, suddenly I just felt I was being excluded from when we are down 
in in when we were in Wales to the trip uh, and 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 you know he, he he was confiding quite a bit with with Solly who at that stage was involved with the Stormers so it was it was it was quite difficult because we had come such a long way and then suddenly that relationship had, had disintegrated and and so I knew there was something uh, um, bothering him or that something wasn't right. And and then um, I basically, uh, I got a call. I was on the physio bench at um, at the Sharks and then got a call. And the, he, said, he said that uh, basically, you know, he's going to go with Bobby, who had also been injured. Um and that he was, uh, I think, going to take take Anton Lennon. So I'd sort of gone from one to five um, in in a short space of time. So yeah, that's but it's it's sport. You got to take it from where it comes. I mean, if your fa- I'd be very surprised if your family say, you know, you not shouldn't be in that team, especially my mother. <laughs> She she actually didn't believe I was dro- dropped. She thought that he was just arresting me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it, it it's not a it's it's not a nice space. Um, but I think uh, as a player, you know, eighty percent of the time, you know if you should be in that side or you shouldn't be in that side. Um, and and I think especially if you've come a long way, and and that was a di- disappointing thing is that, you know, if if Nick had said to me, shit, um, excuse my language, uh, um, that you're not number one at the moment, but you need to play yourself into, and I'm going to give you opportunities on this tour to or the World Cup to play into that position, but at the moment you're not there. But I went from one to five and then that's um and i think sometimes a coach maybe feels that because you're a captain uh that you you have to play and and it would be quite difficult but i think i certainly would have accepted it and until i proved that i i should have been from a from a performance point of view i wouldn't want to be in that side if you weren't performing just because you're the captain. But it, it becomes quite a hard conversation for the coach. Joost van der Westeisen was appointed captain for the Rugby World Cup that year, and off we went to Scotland for the pool stages. The box produced arguably their best performance of the year up to that point, slaying Scotland 46-29 at Murrayfield in their opening game. No mean feat, guys. Scotland were actually the Five Nations champions at the time. They also haven't won it since. Then we took on Uruguay and Spain, two very unusual opponents. And yes, we won, but we laboured to victory. I think my eyes hurt watching those two matches. And I think everyone else who watched it had the same experience. But it's not easy to play against those smaller teams. They play a very negative brand of rugby and they try to disrupt everything that you are trying to do. What does this mean in practice? Not rolling away, not releasing the ball, late tackles, playing offside almost constantly. And so it's very difficult for the other team to actually get going. 
at least we won both matches by very comfortable margins. But the players weren't actually very happy in Scotland. Joost van der Westezen, in a 5FM interview at the time, told Darren Scott that the players didn't actually feel as if they were at a Rugby World Cup. Here's Kubis Fasahi to tell you a little bit more. I mean, Edinburgh was nice. You know, we had a couple of good nights out, um, but it was very isolated and um, I would agree 100%. It was only in Paris when we really hit the strides. And, um, but yeah, it was a very isolated uh, setup. I, I'm not also aware, you know, it's such a, such a long time ago, but I can't remember that there were any other games played up, up there, you know, in that time period as well. Um, I know that we went to this very grim um, shopping centre where we played Templin Bowling in Glasgow, you know, because we were asking questions, I would say. The players were much happier heading to France for the quarter-final at the Stade de France against England. The marketing and promotion in France was superior to what the players had seen in Scotland. The world champions actually felt as if they were at a Rugby World Cup and duly delivered. We pumped England 44-21 in what is now known as the Yanni de Beer Show. Yanni helped himself to a world record five drop goals against England, and remarkably, all five of those came in the second half. Who thought of that tactic? Let's hear from 1999 Springbok assistant coach Heineke Meyer. Uh, I don't want to take any credit, but just, just from my view, I think it's like, you know, as things grow and everybody's got a different viewpoint, but as I, as I can recollect, is, uh, um, I was quite, through John McFarlane that uh, introduced me, uh, um, uh, Brennan actually introduced me to John McFarlane to help us with the technical side, especially on England. Um, so I, I, uh, I was, like I said, I was a, like a young coach and a sponge. I just sit next to Brendan and he was playing in, uh, I think, London Irish those days. So he knew the English team quite well. And myself and Brendan and John spent a lot of time because John was also technical advisor at London Irish. So they were very close friends. So obviously they spoke a lot at night and I, I didn't know Brendan that well. Uh, he was a good uh, tactician and he, he played against the English and know them very well. So we would sit every night and over dinner and just, you know, just speak rugby, not just what we're going to do against England, just speak rugby. And I was learning a lot being from South Africa. I haven't been overseas that much. And then um, as I can recollect over dinner, myself, Brendan was talking and, and uh, how to beat England and what can we do? And then, I think he came up with the idea, you know, maybe we must go for one or two drop goals because there's always... And, and Henry Hannibal was also in the squad, but that game specifically, Yanni played. And I remember myself, Yanni, and, and Brennan talking, and then we spoke to Nick. Uh, and we thought, okay, let's give Yanni a go, probably for one or two drop goals. And I remember the call was Bok till this day, and I'll, I'll tell you why I remember that, that well. So my recollection is... Um, so we went to Nick... And uh, it wasn't my idea, but I was taking it to Nick as the forward coach and being close with Brendan. And Nick was quite keen and said, okay, let's have a go. But what I can remember, which is my side of the story, and there's so many sides. So I remember, like I said, I was running up and down the touch and Nick was in my ear. And I know four of the five times, and I think the players also took, uh, you know, they also had the decision from their side. But I remember four of those five drop goals. I actually, from, from the side, gave the call, Bok, go for the drop. Um, and again, it was unbelievable just to stand there on the touch touch, being so close to the play and just see these drop goals going over one by one. And uh, that was amazing. So uh, I think probably at the end it was Brendan and, and Yanni that came up with the idea, but uh, it worked. And that was a great England side and uh, unbelievable to be so part of it. And like I said, so close being on the field with almost every drop goal. I've got this uh, 
nasty street where when I go to the gym here in my in 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 St Albans, I when I'm on the um, uh, elliptical or on the um, the running machines, I watch YouTube videos on it on this big screen, and then I always leave it for them, and that's always like famous wins of the Springbok against the English. I just leave it there for the next person to, to be reminded of it. Something that is of interest is the way the tournament was structured. Between 1987 and 95, there were four pools of four teams to make up the 16. But in 1999, the tournament was expanded to 20 teams. And in a very awkward arrangement, there were five pools of four. The winners of each pool advanced to the quarterfinals, and then the second-placed sides, as well as the best third-place team, advanced to a playoff round. Those six teams would then be whittled down to three, and they advanced to the quarterfinal. Those matches, those playoff matches, were played in the middle of the week, and unsurprisingly, guys, all the teams that played in the middle of the week lost their quarterfinal on the weekend. South Africa would come up against Australia in the semi-finals at Twickenham. That's in London not exactly in Wales, who were the official host nation, but whatever. It was a titanic encounter. Yanni de Beer again attempted several drop goals, but was not as successful as the previous week. We were actually behind for most of the match, but a few late penalties from de Beer ensured that the final score was 21-21 and the match was forced into extra time. And then irony of all ironies, the Wallabies moved into the lead with a drop goal of their own, this one courtesy of Stephen Larkin. Matt Burke would slot a late penalty to boot, and that meant the Wallabies advanced 27-21 at our expense. We would have to play in the third place playoff. It was heartbreaking stuff. Let's also hear now from Albert van den Berg. It was terrible. I, you know, that game, I mean, we ended up getting a penalty and, and the scores was level and going into the extra time. I mean, Rossi spoke about it, you know, that drop goal from Stephen Larkin when it just touched his finger and sort of went over the pole. So the moments were there. Um, we could have won that game, you know, looking at the video afterwards and you see these opportunities we had. But, uh, you know, you can't go back and change things. Uh, but it wasn't a nice feeling. You know, we, we bowled it up 95 World, World Cup winners, 99 is the next one. I think we had good preparation going into that tournament. Uh, Nick Mallet planned everything to the T. Um, you know, you don't plan for stopping a drop goal uh, and ended up Stephen Larkin getting that. And it wasn't a good feeling for us. You know, we went through, I think then we played New Zealand in the third and fourth uh, playoff and, and we ended up beating New Zealand in that game. You know, it, it's, it's left a bad taste in the mouth, but uh, yeah, we have to move on. South Africa may have been forgiven for thinking they would play France in that bronze medal match, but the French went ahead and pulled off one of the great upsets in the history of rugby by defeating the All Blacks in stunning fashion 43-31. The New Zealanders were 24-10 ahead early in the second half before France stunned them to go 43-24 ahead. And yeah, sure, the All Blacks scored a late try, but by then it was too little too late. France would go to the Rugby World Cup final. The All Blacks would have to play the Springboks for the bronze medal in Cardiff. Confession time, guys. I have to admit that I didn't actually watch that second semi-final. Not live, anyway. I've watched it since. But I remember sitting on the couch. The match had begun. New Zealand took the lead. And I just thought to myself, there's no ways these guys are going to lose. And I got up and I went to go do something else. 
Well, as it turns out, the joke was on me because I missed out on one of the most sensational rugby matches. Luckily, as I say, I have watched it back a few times since then. We would go on to beat the Kiwis in that bronze medal match with Brayton Pulser scoring a memorable try along the way. Brayton describes that five-pointer for you here. I remember we were on our way to, to, to Wales from, from London and uh, <laughs> Nick actually gave us off. Uh, and on our way, you know, while the French were playing the All Blacks, <laughs> uh, we got a text that to say that, geez, like France is beating <laughs> uh, the All Blacks, uh, you know. So we didn't expect to to play the All Blacks in the third place. They were the, the ultra favourites at here. And yeah, and, and Nick said, no, 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 come on, guys, we need to now prepare for this game. It became more important. And and obviously, again, a lot of the, the French players also get a chance uh, in that game. And I was one of them. And I was really grateful for the opportunity. And I remember it was also Henry Hannibal's last game. He was uh, unfortunately injured for the whole of the World Cup. You know, he had a bit of a niggle and then Yannick de Beer obviously slotted in and he did so well against uh, England and France. Um, so obviously we wanted to do well and because there was lots of disappointment after the semi-final against Australia, uh, where we all know the Larkham drop. You know, we remember that game where... It was like neck and neck, you know, for so long. And unfortunately, the Aussies got the better of us that day because of a Larkham drop. Uh, but in, in saying that, the third player was an important game for a lot of us. Uh, and certainly for me, you know, at the time I was obviously trying to revive my Springboard career because I was mainly a squad player that year. Didn't get lots of opportunities. Made my debut, but didn't get lots of opportunities. And, and now you want to try and cement your place in the Springbok side. And, and that game for me was vital. I remember Percy Montgomery, two drop goals against the All Blacks in that game. And I managed to get, you know, the solo try where I had to use some soccer skill. And the, the bounce of the ball uh, favoured me as well. And I and I think uh, maybe if there was a TMO at that time, it probably wouldn't have been given. But <laughs> I'll take it today, you know. So, yeah, again, it works for me. And I, I was almost like, you know, getting new motivation to say that, just you know, this is only the beginning and uh, thankfully we beat the, the mighty All Blacks that day. So in the end, you'd have to say that the Springboks met the minimum requirements for 1999. In my opinion, South Africa should reach the semi-finals of every single Rugby World Cup. Anything else should be seen as a disaster. It was a really good win over Scotland to start the tournament, that memorable quarter-final victory over England in Paris, the sucker punch against Australia in extra time in the semi-finals, and then it was really nice to finish off on a high by beating the All Blacks to win third place. See you next time.